Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and I am joined as usual by co-host Dara Lind. Hello. And by our special guest panelist this week, Washington Post reporter Tulu Olurunipa. Great to be here. And this week, we're going to be talking about the Senate Republican tax plan. And if you don't know about the Senate Republican tax plan, then Mitch McConnell is really happy it hasn't made it to you. But Rick Scott, uh, who is running Republican Senate campaign efforts this year for the midterms, and who came up with this tax plan is really bummed out. Uh, so this week, we're all going to be talking about Rick Scott's plan. Uh, to we're, move, we're doing uh, Rick Scott a favor is what you're saying. We are getting the word out about his not at all politically toxic, not at all doomed to failure proposal for how to re- remake taxes. And I'm really excited we have Tulu here since he uh, reported on Rick Scott when he was governor of Florida and had the opportunity to implement a lot of his tax policy ideas. So... Before we get into it, let me just back up a little bit. Rick Scott came out with this very long 11-point plan to rescue America as part of his efforts as the chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. There are are a lot of things in there, certainly. Uh, In there uh, is a requirement that all uh, legislation lapse after a certain number of years, and the reasoning being that if if Congress likes it enough, they can just pass it again. Um, And so you're already seeing attacks from Democrats that Rick Scott wants to, like, abolish Social Security and Medicare and have them sunset, since those are technically laws that would be subject to his, his proposals. But I think the biggest item there that's gotten the most attention is uh, his proposal that all Americans should pay some kind of income tax and have some skin in the game, even if a small amount, currently over half of Americans pay no income tax. So it's not true that over half of Americans pay no income tax. I think uh, it's somewhere in the mid-40s is my understanding of, of of the most current statistics. But it's an interesting idea that calls back to to some sort of older ideas among Republicans that poor and middle class people just aren't earning their keep in the income tax. And so I wanted to talk about it and what that would mean if it's actually something Republicans are serious about. Um, It seems somewhat unpopular. And so uh, Mitch McConnell has been trying to get Rick Scott to shut up about it. But I'm curious what you guys make of it and, and how you situate it in Republican tax policy. Yeah, it's, it kind of came out of nowhere uh, with, with Rick Scott. It wasn't 
you know, something that was stamped with approval from the Republican leadership. This is Rick Scott, who has always kind of seen himself as someone who could run for president one day. He was an unlikely person to run for governor. He came out of the business world and ran for governor and won by a very slim margin in 2010. Uh, and then during the Tea Party wave and then won again by another less than one point one or about one percent margin in 2014. And he then was able to win a seat in the Senate by another very close margin. And he has run on these kind of strange ideas that, you know, he's a businessman, he's going to get everyone to work, and he's cracked down very significantly on the social safety net. And this is a interesting idea that there are too many people getting government benefits. There should be more people paying into the federal government, the federal treasury. Um, it's not something that other Republicans, for the you know, that you know, they were looking to campaign on as they were looking into 2022 and the midterms. But Rick Scott wants to have this argument. He wants to have this argument about makers versus takers, who's actually paying into the federal treasury, who's who's benefiting from it. And it is kicking off this really interesting argument about sort of how our tax system is structured, whether the tax system should be used to provide benefits or, or to sort of have everyone pay in, um, whether there's some sort of moral argument that can be made about whether people should be paying in, even if it's a nominal amount. So it is a really interesting argument, and I'm not surprised that it's Rick Scott that's making that argument, even if the Republican <laughs> leadership does not want to be having this argument about raising taxes in an election year. So here's my kind of question about Rick Scott that I realize even as you're kind of going through his background to Lou that I don't really understand. Uh, because if you were elected to the Senate in 2010 as a Republican, you were the beneficiary of structural factors beyond your control, namely like out party, you know, general frustration with the ACA, that kind of thing. And if you, you know, similarly, if you're going into the 2022 election as a Republican, you're doing pretty well on the generic ballot and you're probably, you're more likely to win your seat for, again, factors that have nothing to do with you. But a lot of politicians, and this is by no means, you know, limited to one party or the other, tend to assume that if they succeed, that it must be because their ideas are incredibly popular or they themselves are incredibly popular, that, you know, they are carried to third base and assume they hit triples. So it, does Rick Scott think that, you know, the key to his political success has been that the American people really want to see politicians calling for everybody to pay income tax? Or is he pushing this because he's already thinking ahead to 2023? He's assuming that Republicans are going to take back the Senate, which doesn't seem like a terrible assumption. And he's jockeying for what they're going to do once they take it back by building the case that he can then make to Mitch McConnell that this was a promise that they made to the American people that they now have to keep. Yeah, that's a, that's a really insightful question. Rick Scott has benefited from, you know, these waves that have happened 2010, 2014, uh, 2018. He, he sort of cut against the grain, but he put in tons of additional of, of his own money because he's a very wealthy businessman. And uh, it's it's clear that he believes that his political philosophy is a winning philosophy. It, it won in Florida, which is a crucial swing state, even though it won by very slim margins. Uh, and he was a largely unpopular governor for most of his time there. But he believes that, you know, his philosophy on, you know, making sure everyone works, everyone is paying into the system is something that Americans want to hear. And I do think he's thinking about 2023 and 2024 and thinking about the presidential race and trying to differentiate himself from mm -hmm. uh, this Republican feel that is starting to come together. Uh, he sees this as one of the many different things that he can do to show that he's a businessman. He wants to have 
more people paying into the government and fewer people taking things from the government. And it's a broad argument. It, it plays in, in some ways to uh, what President Trump talked about in 2016 about makers versus takers and people sort of living off the government and you know taking from you and, and, and that kind of thing. So it is sort of this broad argument about the other, the them, the, the people that are you know benefiting from the government and you know just saying everyone should pay in is is could be seen as popular in a way just sort of we're all in this together but when you get into the details when you get into what this actually means for people when you get into sort of the details of the fact that you know most people do pay taxes in some ways whether it's sales taxes or other kinds of uh, levies people are paying into the system one way or the other but as a slogan it's something that he's using to try to differentiate himself and show that he does have different ideas and he does have a policy platform not just sort of this grievance politics that we're seeing uh, sort of living on the right right now it's interesting in that, as you're saying, that it has as kind of a populist bent. In a way, it seems like an importation of welfare politics into the tax code, mm -hmm. um, which is somewhat appropriate in that a lot of what we think of as welfare programs are being implemented through the tax code. For years now, I think like the big inflection point here was 1993 when Bill Clinton passed his budget, which included dramatic expansions of the earned income tax credit. But just continuing on since then, like a lot more and more social policy has been happening through the tax code. And the earned income tax credit is is one of, I think, after Social Security, the program with the largest effect on poverty of anything that the federal government does. It's administered through the tax code. The child tax credit, especially in this past year, has also had a very large effect, is administered through the tax code. It's not refundable, but for people slightly up the, the income chain, child and developmental care tax credit for child care expenses administered through the tax code. And you see this if you look at the the number that he's so concerned about. So I just pulled up from the Tax Policy Center their estimates of the share of Americans who have zero or negative net income tax liability. And he was right that it's a majority for 2020 and 2021. And the reason it was a majority was stimulus checks. Mm -hmm. um, and so you had these, these large checks going out the window. And so if you, in 2021, say, would have owed $1,400 in taxes, and then you got your stimulus check you got bumped into the not paying your income taxes group. Mm -hmm. um, and it's set to go down again to about 41.6% for 2022. Since the, the stimulus payments were, were temporary, they're not coming back, barring um, some very dramatic changes. But it, this, this number went up the more that the tax code was used as an instrument of social policy and welfare policy. And so what part of what's so interesting to me about what Rick Scott was, is doing here is that he's, he's taking rhetoric that he and others have applied to like food stamps, to TANF, uh, to Medicaid, um, about sort of deservingness. Um, elsewhere in his his 11-point plan to rescue America, he uh, calls for a ban on all government assistance unless you're disabled or aggressively seeking work. And this seems to fit very much in that, um, that there's a skin in the game idea, but there's also a sort of, if you're not paying your share, that probably means you're benefiting from some government programs that are being offered too liberally. What strikes me as super interesting here is that, like, you guys are right that it's definitely using tax policy as a way to express a moral economy, right? And, like, the other data point that's worthwhile here is, like, this is not the first time that uh, this is not the first time in recent memory that a Republican with presidential aspirations has, you know, seized on this particular thing. Like, what makes it very interesting as something that Rick Scott is pushing aggressively and what probably explains Mitch McConnell's extreme reticence to touch this part of it is that Mitt Romney 
arguably uh, lost worse in 2012 than he otherwise would have because of being associated with this idea that 47% of people pay no income tax and we've got to fix that, that, you know, was leaked uh, thanks to, I, th- I believe, a waiter at the event that he was giving the, the, the closed-door fundraising speech. But it's not exactly as if this is the field on which they have to have the fight about the moral economy of, you know, makers and takers in the U.S., right? Like, there are other policy areas, for example, like, directly taking on the more redistributive parts of the plan, Dylan, that you're talking, uh, the more redis- more directly redistributive policies that you're talking about that aren't administered through the tax code. You know, there's currently a great deal of enthusiasm on the right for using, you know, local education battles as a proxy for culture wars. It's not, ex- you know, it's not like this is what they need to do in order to express the idea that Americans need to take back what they own from an other. And at the same time, this does just purely on pure economics cut against the idea that you have to keep cutting taxes in order to continue to shrink government. That like the more revenue comes in, the more ways government will find to pay for and the more you'll end up having to pay in taxes ultimately anyway, because they're not going to be satisfied with just a little bit of money from you. They'll take and take and take. So like it does strike me as interesting that Rick Scott is expressing the idea that the government should be making more money off some people, even though he very clearly wants the government, the federal government to be smaller and to be giving less money back out. It's the anti-Grover Norquist argument, right? That you don't, that like Grover Norquist, I want to say apocryphally, but given Grover Norquist almost certainly has started saying this, even if it wasn't originally his, that government, he wants government to be small enough that he can drown it in the bathtub, right? Like this is force feeding government just in order to say that everybody is putting some food into the dish. Right. And it's not like in this plan, Scott is saying everyone should pay in so that we can have universal health care or that there's an out, there's sort of a specific outcome for it. It's just sort of like everyone should pay in just so that there's skin in the game. And it's really interesting that that's the argument. It's not sort of a, a policy argument of numbers and sense of sort of trying to figure out you know, what could we do if everyone paid, you know, $1,000 a year into the federal government? If, you know, this 40% of people uh, paid that much money, you know, how much money would we raise, whether they'd use it to pay off the debt or, or, or what? There's no specific answer or policy outline of what exactly he wants to do. But it's really interesting that Scott is the one that's sort of putting forward this argument because he's one of the wealthiest people in the Senate, one of the wealthiest people in the country. He's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, he has his own history of sort of, uh, you know, how he made that money through the Medicaid system and, and whatnot. But it's really interesting that, you know, at this time of very deep income inequality, where Democrats are saying, we need to tax people like Rick Scott more. He is the one saying, you know, we need to, we need to tax the poor, or tax people who aren't paying into the system just to have, make sure they have skin in the game. It, it's a politically dangerous argument because it's very easy for that to be flipped against him and, and sort of people to say, here's this wealthy guy who has all of these mansions and who bought his way into the Senate now trying to use his power to tax people who don't have that much to, to begin with. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think that was that was also the problem with Romney is uh, he, he's also a hundreds of millionaire caught saying this. And, and I think there was an interesting uh, piece by Alan Cole, who uh, writes for a site called Full Stack Economics and is a former uh, used to work at the Tax Foundation, which is a sort of conservative tax think tank and worked on the Republican side of the hill. So he knows how Republicans think about taxes. And 
the piece was, was useful in that it reminded me that Fromney's full quote, as quoted by Mother Jones from the tape that I think it was Jimmy Carter's grandson gave them. Oh, um, it was Jimmy Carter's um, grandson. And then, like, Jim, Jimmy Carter this. has said that Obama, like, profusely thanked his grandson afterwards. <laughs> but that the Romney's actual quote was, there are 47% of the people who will vote for the president no matter what. There are 47%. Uh, there are 47% who are with him, who are dependent upon government, who believe that, that they are victims, who believe the government has a responsibility to care for them, who believe that they are entitled. And, and so he was making, like, He's making a moral argument, but he's also making a political strategic argument. Mm. And it's an argument that has a pretty long pedigree in conservative and libertarian politics. If you read sort of public choice economists, people like James Buchanan or Gordon Tulloch, and go go back to that sort of school in economics, a lot of it is about how you should never expect uh, laissez-faire ideas to ever succeed in a democracy because you can always buy off the people's vote by like soaking the rich and and distributing the money. And that's always going to be a vote getter. And descriptively, that just doesn't seem to describe most countries in the world. Um, it isn't a reliable vote getter. And there are ways to defeat people promising more government benefits. For one thing, like Biden is promising more government programs, but also inflation is really high. And people seem to care a lot more that inflation is really high than he's promising all these, these government programs. But that's particularly interesting to me in that sort of Rick Scott is is released this in his role as a campaigns guy, as, as the guy trying to get Republicans control of the Senate. So he's laying out this kind of long-term political strategy that strikes me as pretty half-baked, but but I think there's there's a certain degree of like political economy to it as well as moral economy. Yeah, I mean, I do wonder how much anyone who expresses that, like, oh, our ideas will fundamentally never win in a true popular election because everyone else will be bought off. Like, it seems to me like the sort of thing that you tell your true believers to make it fe- make them feel like they need to work super duper hard. But, you know, it's not consistent with plenty of Republicans and other strategists who describe the U.S. as a center-right country on economic issues. It's not consistent with, like, generations worth of efforts to use culture war appeals to mobilize voters while pursuing, you know, an economic agenda that might not be those particular voters' core needs, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, and especially after a news, after, after an election where, while we still don't know exactly what happened in 2020 and how dispositive it is for future cycles, it does seem that, you know, lower income, lower education voters, especially men, are swinging back away from being like a, a thoroughly democratic constituency. So, you know, I, it would it would surprise me if you gave Rick Scott truth serum, if he was like, oh, yeah, this is a terribly unpopular agenda. No one who has ever gotten a government benefit would want to vote for it. Um but Incredible it, you know. Rick Scott impression. <laughs> I mean, no, it's, I'm not even trying. I'm not even trying. But that said, what Toulouse has, was saying earlier makes a lot of sense in this regard. That like it's not really about 2022. It's really about 2024. But you know, we kind of do have to talk about the Mc, Mitch McConnell of it all, right? That mm-hmm. like. Mitch McConnell isn't opposing this getting talked about because he's like on the record is really strongly believing that low income people in this country shouldn't have to pay federal income tax. (laughs) He's like opposing it because he believes that this is a bad look for Republicans that's going to lose them gettable votes. And like, I'm fascinated by the fact that this is 
a political dispute, but no one is actually articulating the it's a good idea for us to be running on this agenda in 2022 side of the argument. It's just Rick Scott going around saying this is important and everyone else kind of looking uncomfortable and wishing he'd shut up. Yeah, and I, and I do think it, this is something that Scott believes in. I mean, from covering him while he was governor in Florida, he really believed that the best way to get poor people to make more money is just to sort of cut off, cut them off, sort of reduce the amount of government benefits, make them pay more into the system. And he sort of had his own rags to riches tale where he said that, you know, not having government support was what helped him, you know, decide to go out and become a businessman. And I, I do think that's sort of genuinely what he believes. Um, and sort of the politics is also part of it because he's won on, you know, on Tea Party populism and on sort of this broader idea that, you know, people are taking too much out of the government. And, and you know, what we've seen over the past couple of years with the pandemic is, um, you know, we've seen government respond. We've seen, we've seen people in the government use the tax code to provide benefits that people needed. They needed, you know, benefits in terms of the $1,400 checks. They needed the stimulus money that came through during the pandemic. And, you know, Democrats, for the most part, have been pretty successful in at least showing people that the tax code can work in a very robust and swift manner to put money in their pockets. And now Republicans are sort of trying to figure out how to respond to that. And one thing um, that Scott is doing is sort of looking at the complexity of the tax code and probably trying to campaign on the idea that a lot of people think that they're paying more taxes than their neighbor when, you know, there are some people who may be harmed by this policy, but they they actually think it's their neighbor that would be harmed by this policy. And, you know, because there's not a, a lot of specificity in this, you know, this is maybe one of those instances where it's sort of a, a cultural thing where um, Scott and Trump basically tried to paint, you know, certain segments of the population as the takers, as the people who are benefiting from the tax code, and everyone else is hardworking um, and, you know, paying into the tax code when, you know, it's, it's a complex system and a lot of people just don't know how much they're paying in taxes. They don't know what their overall tax burden is. People think they're paying more than they actually are paying in some cases. And that may be something that's going into the calculus as well. So we're going to take a break, but when, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about how this uh, relates to the Mitch McConnell of it all and the Donald Trump of it all and sort of the broader effort to, to remake or shape the Republican Party going into 2024. Uh, so stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. 
Affordable, high-quality basic healthcare for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that healthcare is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. And we're back. I wanted to talk a little bit, not just about Rick Scott and, the, and this plan, but about where it fits into kind of where Republicans are going on policy. And I, th- I guess a, a basic question there is, is how important is policy? Will there be like real policies by the Republican Party going forward? Or is it just sort of vibes all the way down? And And by that, I mean, like we are sort of entering into a period where uh, it looks like Donald Trump is the presumptive 2024 frontrunner. There might be someone like DeSantis who can dethrone him, but uh, he has never been big on like super granular policy detail. Building the wall and shutting down the borders uh, after COVID seemed like about as specific as he liked to get. So there's a question of, does this all matter? Like I spent much of 2015, I guess it would be, like trying to sort through all the different proposals by all the different Republican candidates. And I don't know that I wasted that time, but it, it certainly doesn't feel super well used <laughs> given given how little it wound up affecting the real world. So I'm curious how how you guys think of this and, and sort of how we should be thinking of of the Republican policy agenda at this point. Yes, I do have many, many, many questions about this. I, as someone who has also, you know, veered wildly between feeling very smug about myself for understanding the policies of the Trump administration better than, you know, President Donald Trump did and feeling like I was the only one who was missing the boat and everyone else successfully understood that this was, you know, pure symbolic politics. And given what, you know, what I mentioned in passing earlier about the amount of enthusiasm among the Republican base right now for things that have nothing to do with tax policy, I do have really big questions about what happens after a new presumably Republican Congress gets sworn in in January 2023. Like, I think that one way to understand what Rick Scott is doing is that he knows Mitch McConnell would be perfectly happy not to pass any legislation because any legislation might be unpopular, um, especially if you'd have to work with a Democratic president to get it signed. And that if Rick Scott wants Republicans to actually seize the opportunity to do something well in office, that he has to, you know, lay that groundwork now. At the same time, I can't really imagine that the new Republican senator from Georgia is going to come in saying, wow, thank you, Rick Scott. I got elected because you made sure America knew that we, the Republicans, want everyone to pay taxes. And so I'm going to enthusiastically vote for this bill. Like, the question of whether a Republican Congress really has to do anything at all, especially with the Democrat in the White House, is an extremely open one, to say the least. And it's not clear to me that you know, anyone other than Rick Scott in Congress is going to be very enthusiastic about the idea that Congress needs to pass them some bills. I, I do. Yeah, I, I, um, I agree with what, what, what Dara said. And I believe that there's a 
a backlash that we're seeing um, in response to what happened in 2020 and 2021. The Republicans saw the government really responding to people's needs and also sort of paying out a lot of money in a pandemic response um, that some people believe was excessive, that you know people got too much money, that there was too much money going from the government to uh, into the economy. There's this backlash against inflation. You know, there's a, a response that is happening in different ways. Rick Scott's own response in a way is to say, not only do we need to change the tax code so it's not paying out as much money to people, we need to make sure that some of these people that are getting benefits are actually paying money into the government so they don't think that this is free money. There's no free ride. Everyone should have to pay something. And that is part of the the Republican response. It's not it doesn't represent the entire party. Obviously, it does not represent Mitch McConnell. But it does come from this sentiment that, you know, there was an overreaction in 2020 and 2021 with too much money coming out of Washington, D.C. into people's pockets. And there needs to be a correction in some ways. And there's also, you know, this broader, you know, Republican coalition that includes the business world that says, you know, you can do everything that you're doing with these cultural grievances. We'll turn our, our, our nose away from Trump, but, you know, just make sure we get our tax cuts. And that's part of the policy as well. And if you're at least having people look at the shiny objects of, of you know, taxing, you know, the 40% of people that don't pay taxes, maybe they're focusing less on whether we need to raise taxes on the wealthy or at least you know, whether there will be ta- additional tax cuts for the wealthy. Um, so I, I do think it's a, a sort of part of the coalition in the, in the Republican Party is sort of figuring out what to do so that they can have some policy so it's not just about culture wars uh, because they do need the business part of the, the business wing of the party. They do need to feel like they're offering something to their donors and people who uh, benefited from the 2017 tax cuts and are looking for the next bite of the apple, or at least to keep the Democrats from going after their capital gains tax uh, rates or other things that Democrats have eyed uh, over the past couple of years. So I, I do think that that's part of what Rick Scott is thinking, sort of figuring out how to make sure that they are focusing on not only the culture wars, but at least the policy things that are important to parts of the coalition. I do find that the idea that the Republican Party would have to work to get to demonstrate that they are favorable to business interests or that the, that they are going to improve things for business interests it, it's it's not actually a natural assumption right like not only is it happening in the midst of a rising critique of you know woke corporations and you know rising attention to economic policies that republicans have pursued in the past that benefit particular you know large corporations such as facebook or disney that are now perceived to have the wrong kind of cultural politics it's also true that like for ages and ages there was something of a captive audience situation between business and the republican party where when business did have asks that were in any way counter to the interests of the Republican base and to the expressed interests of the Republican base, that, you know, the Republican Party didn't necessarily feel that it needed to bend over backwards to be solicitous to business interests, because where else are you going to go? So if there is a desire to demonstrate to business, no, we're going to be even better for you than we were in 2017 when we passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that indicates to me a certain amount of uncertainty or insecurity about the future alignment of kind of the the wealthiest uh, toward the Republican Party, which given educational trends, like might not be wrong. But it's interesting if Republicans are already, you know, beginning to worry about that. I do think it's it's interesting to place this in the context that the Tulu was placing it in earlier of 
a reaction to 2020 because mm. I had a brief moment in 2020 in like March 2020. I, I feel like every journalist has to have a moment in their career where they're like, maybe the Republicans are really different now. <laughs> um, but uh, I had I had this moment where you were seeing things like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley calling for checks as the pandemic was breaking out and as it became clear people were going to have to stay home. You had Republicans joining to vote for the CARES Act, which included $600 a week unemployment benefits. And throughout that year, you even had Republicans voting to extend unemployment benefits at a lower level in the fall. You had Josh Hawley calling again for $600 checks in December 2020. And so there was part of me that was looking at this and thinking, you know, we might be getting to a point where the economic leg of the stool, um, that if, if the Republican coalition is a stool of the foreign policy hawks and the tax cutters and the traditional social conservatives, maybe the economic leg was being kicked out, that it just like it didn't work in these these circumstances. And, and a sort of new Republican ideology that was more comfortable with government intervention was being born. And I think a few things have kind of brought me back down to earth since then. Uh, one has been the reaction to Mitt Romney's child allowance plan um, that he he proposed what I thought was a very, like, uh, uh, I liked it, <laughs> um, uh, a very reasonable sort of consolidation of various programs to keep child benefits going. And, like, not a bite by any other Republicans. Um, even Republicans who've been very sort of positive toward the child tax credit in general, like Marco Rubio and, and Mike Lee, denounced it, said Romney had gone too far, this was a dead end, you can't give money to people who aren't working. And I think the the Scott agenda serves a similar role of the economic conservatives, the the people who, who want to run on eliminating the IRS and waging class war against the federal bureaucracy. Those guys are still around. They're still an important part of this coalition. And a lot of the changes in 2020 were like genuinely the results of a once in a lifetime emergency rather than like a durable change to how they were approaching these questions. Yeah, I think that's that's 100 percent accurate. And as a lot of these potential candidates are looking at 2024, they do want to be able to differentiate themselves and say that they weren't part of the you know, the the big giveaway, the big government giveaway of 2020 <laughs> and 2021. You know, they support the idea that the government supported people, but this idea that it was overdone or that there were too many people getting money, there weren't people decided they, they weren't going to work. Um, that backlash is sort of happening in real time. And we are seeing Republicans sort of try to reposition themselves, even those that may have been voting for the CARES Act and pushing forward some of these policies. And when you think about the tax code, it is, you know, we've seen over the past couple of years, if there's one way to touch every American's pocketbook, uh, it is through the tax code. That's how we operate. Uh, we don't have a different system. Other countries might have other, other ways to get things to people. But we found that if you want to get, you know, a check to every single American, at least as much as possible, we do it through the tax code here. So that is a double-edged sword for some Republicans, especially small government Republicans who don't want the government to be in everybody's pocketbook, don't want the government to have that access to everyone so easily. Uh, some of them are now saying, you know, maybe we should not have a, a tax code that uh, and, a, and an IRS that has the ability to impact people's lives so so directly and so quickly. And if it if it is going to be that, in, in Rick Scott's uh, mind, it should be one in which, you know, more people are paying into the system or, and more people are seeing both sides of the ledger, not just, you know, getting the free check. So it is really interesting to see how the politics is playing out with Republicans sort of 
looking at 2024, looking at um, how they might reposition themselves and, and, you know, having covered Trump for, for four years, the, the big elephant in the room uh, is, is Donald Trump and how he will position himself uh, on, this, uh, on this issue. He's not a big policy guy, but he was the guy saying, you know, everyone should get $2,000 checks and let's give more money to people. So how he responds and how he reacts and, and positions himself as we go into um, 2024 will be very interesting. Maybe he doesn't touch it at all. Maybe he says, you know, I'm happy just talking about 2020 and culture wars and the border. But if he does engage on this policy front, it will be really interesting because I think most Republicans that are thinking about running don't know where he's going to land on this because he's kind of been all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I think that the 2024 conversation is two-tiered, right? Like, for one thing, many of the candidates, many of the people who are currently trying to position themselves, like, you know, genuinely would not want to run or would assume that they couldn't run if Donald Trump is going to run for president again. And while he's given every indication that he would like to, it's a long time away. He is not the youngest person. It is not implausible that, like, something will happen and you will, like, not be at the Republican convention in 2024 or he'll be there as, like, a grandee rather than as a candidate. But the other part of it is that if you think about the lessons of 2017 in Congress, you know, the first half of the year represented a lot of effort being put into an unsuccessful push to repeal Obamacare, which it wasn't that that wasn't something Republicans had been running on. It was that they had been running on it without a, you know, clear consensus plan for what they wanted to do instead. And so without having that, they ran into the political unpopularity of parts of that agenda. And like enough of them were wavering about it or insufficiently committed to the goal that they couldn't get it through. Whereas the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was like not something that was, you know, it's not like it was being hashed out very gradually and in the open or anything. It was a massive thing, a massive bill that got past the 11th hour. But they were able to, they did have enough buy-in that this was something that they wanted to do. And there were enough people who had enough ideas in the room that they could ultimately throw together a piece of legislation. And I wonder if, you know, the folks who are trying to have an ideas primary prior to the real 2024 presidential primary, which shows no indication of being an ideas <laughs> primary whatsoever if Donald Trump is in the room, is that because he doesn't have strong policy instincts and in particular doesn't have strong legislative policy instincts, most of the things that he really cares about are, you know, what he personally can do, that there might be space for a sufficiently disciplined Republican congressional conference with a sufficiently pre-articulated policy agenda to get some laws passed that Donald Trump is happy to sign and take credit for, but isn't going to care enough about that he's going to try to make demands because the biggest failures of the Trump presidency by on its own terms were consistently him trying to negotiate with Congress. I mean, I think this this is in some ways what we're trying to ask, which is sort of what is the equivalent of the Obamacare repeal effort of yeah. uh, 2017 if Trump or DeSantis or whoever wins in, in 2024? And I genuinely don't know. Maybe it's sort of an, an effort to pass something like saying if you if you do a cancel culture, you, you have to pay X tax or something. Um, but it's also kind of at a disjuncture with uh, the way that the congressional procedure works. Um, if Republicans get a, a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, which doesn't seem inconceivable, they can do a lot of stuff on a variety of issues. But 
if they have anything less than 60, everything has to go through reconciliation. And there are, are pretty strict rules about what you can do through reconciliation. And I would imagine they would try to, to make some of the, the Trump tax cuts permanent. Maybe they try to do a further round of tax cuts, undo any revenue increases that Biden manages to get through. But other than that, there isn't like a big like Democrats problem was that they had too many things like built up or like bowling balls coming down the line. You had like a backlog of them <laughs> um, that, that they all needed to pass. You had to pass child care. You had to pass health care. You had to pass child allowance. You had to pass uh, climate stuff. Republicans don't feel like they have a long list like that. Yeah, and I think it'll be super interesting to see sort of who's in the mix um, in large part because, you know, we're not necessarily talking about a, a huge policy slate. I mean, the, the RNC decided not to have a, a policy agenda the last time they had a convention. They said, we just support anything that Donald Trump uh, supports. So it, it will be interesting to see, as Dara said, in terms of the, the primary before the primary, if policies become a part of that process, you know, what kinds of policies these various candidates, uh, potential candidates are using to differentiate themselves. Rick Scott obviously came out of the gate, put forward this plan, had a number of different policies that he's lining up behind. He got smacked back by Mitch McConnell, who says, you know, pump the brakes on the tax increases. I'm not sure we want to do that. But there will be other people that whether it's on foreign policy, whether it's on taxes, uh, who may try to differentiate themselves from, from you know, their standard Republican politician by saying, this is how I'm different. This is how my policies will, will impact you. And Dylan, I think you're right that uh, it's less likely that we'll see a lot of major tax code planning from from the Republicans uh, in terms of what they would actually do if they got into power. They did, you know, pass a major tax cut in 2017. I think a number of them will just say, you know, we can keep on cutting taxes, but we did a major overhaul. You know, it's not like you're going to see the, a Paul Ryan type with a big idea about how to make taxes much more simple, put it on a postcard, that kind of thing. I think, you know, because the culture wars and the grievance politics has taken over so much of the party, there's probably just not as much of an appetite for someone who's going to be a Paul Ryan and say, this is how I'm going to change the tax code to make it better, to make it simpler, to make it easier, to make it more fair. You're not going to get a 999 plan from Herman Cain or, you know, anything uh, anything like that. I don't think it's going to get much traction because, you know, people are much more into whether it's what's happening on the border, whether it's the, you know, critical race theory topic, whether it's the schools. It does seem like um, we're going to hear much more about cultural uh, politics and grievance politics than uh, policy issues like taxes. Oh, for the sober, policy-minded days of Herman Cain <laughs> in the Republican Party. Rest in peace. <laughs> R.I.P. We're going to take one more break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about social policy, not through the tax code, but how social policy can affect mortality and death and uh, drug abuse. So stay with us. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. 
Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We are back, and our white paper this week is titled Unemployment Insurance and Opioid Overdose Mortality in the United States. It's by Pinkui Wu and Michael Evangelist. It is exactly what the title says. It is about the relationship between unemployment insurance and opioid overdose mortality. And it's especially interesting because there's been a lot of, like, kind of informal hand-wringing about the role of programs like the child tax credit and drug abuse. You saw this from Joe Manchin, sort of reportedly worrying that people were going to spend their child tax credit checks on drugs. But also some more, like, serious and sophisticated efforts to look at whether, say, Medicaid prescribing opioids to people contributed to the epidemic and if there were sort of policy changes that could prevent things like that. This does not answer all of those debates, but I did find it interesting um, that it, it looks at sort of mass layoffs as well as sort of sudden changes to how generous unemployment insurance is as a way to sort of sort out how unemployment insurance causes changes to, to opioid deaths. Um, so it's not just sort of doing a simple regression against where people are unemployed and where people are dying from opioids. It's what what happens when there's a sudden shock to the number of people on unemployment or a sudden shock to how generous it is. And they found a, a pretty significant relationship in that getting more generous unemployment insurance seems to mitigate mortality and, and reduce sort of county mortality rates in their model. Um, so I'm curious what you guys thought of this and, and how it affects how you think about the relationship between the opioid epidemic and some of the programs we've been talking about. So, Dylan, you know this, you know, the kind of post-deaths of despair lit a lot better than I do. So I would like you to let me know if the <laughs> authors are way overselling the novelty of their contribution to the literature, because the way that they frame this, and a total respect if, you know, I understand that the academic paper market, like the journalism market, requires you to sometimes oversell the extent to which no one has ever done what you're doing before. But sure. the way this is framed is there's been a lot of looking at the correlation between unemployment and opioid overdoses. And no one has thought to ask whether the differences in the circumstances under which you're unemployed might have something to do with this. And if that's true, then that is absolutely wild. And I, I, I would love to know why that is, because it's not like, you know, the authors are pretty clear that everybody in having this discussion is having it from a structural perspective. This isn't a question of like, oh, we're the first people to look at opioid overdoses as something other than a sin that a person does that is wrong. But if there is structural attention, why isn't there attention to like economic context beyond just do you have a job? Yes, no. I, I do not have 
anywhere near an encyclopedic knowledge of this literature. And so I, I certainly don't know enough to sort of cast dispersions about whether there's there's been some glaring gap in it. My main impression is just that it's hard, um, that mm -hmm. we don't, we correctly don't run experiments where we just like arbitrarily make some county really miserable economically and then see what happens to drug rates. So you have to do all these comparisons and, and it's just really noisy. I think the best paper I've seen on this was by uh, Chris Room at UVA. And he tried to sort of track county level changes and and uh, drug mortality and uh, sort of county level data on the status of the economy, and he he did find that there were were was more growth in mortality from drugs as the opioid epidemic picked up in areas that seemed economically weaker, but it was a really weak relationship. It disappeared if you controlled for some stuff, and it, it's just very messy. Like there's there's no straightforward like. Poor areas are getting hammered, rich areas are, are not. And you could see that just kind of anecdotally. Like, yes, there was a bad opioid epidemic in West Virginia. There was a really bad one in Vermont and New Hampshire, where I grew up. And like mm -hmm. New Hampshire famously has among the lowest unemployment and poverty rates like in the country. It's a very rich state, like largely made up of people who like fled Massachusetts for tax reasons. And they got hit really, really bad. So I think the kind of simplistic death of despair uh, narrative, which I don't know that anyone ever actually advocated. I, I think even sort of the Case Deaton paper that started all of this was a little subtler, but that seems dead. But right. I found this paper interesting less as a like trying to construct a grand narrative of the opioid crisis paper and more as like, here's a small test case about what we know about giving people money in drug deaths. Mm -hmm. And it seems that giving people money reduces drug deaths. And you wouldn't necessarily expect that. Yeah, I also found this paper really interesting. And even in the context of talking about Rick Scott and the tax code, you know, when Rick Scott was governor, he cut back on unemployment benefits pretty significantly, uh, in, in part because he wanted to be more friendly to businesses in Florida and in other states, you know, unemployment benefits are funded by taxes on businesses. And Scott wanted to cut those taxes and he decided that one way to do it would be to cut the benefits. And it's really interesting to see how that, you know, links to some of these kinds of uh, potential deaths, uh, overdoses um, and things like that. And, and Scott was another, he was a governor, he was among the, the group of governors that wanted to drug test people before giving them, you know, social benefits. And this is one area where it seems like giving people, you know, money may have helped them not to overdose and, you know, may have had a, a benefit uh, rather than sort of, um, you know, stigmatizing people who are dealing with, with addiction. Um, and just to sort of make this slightly more personal. I've been writing this book about George Floyd, which is coming out in, in May, and it's um, pretty common knowledge that George Floyd suffered from an opioid uh, addiction, but he also suffered from deep poverty, and he left the state of Texas to move to Minneapolis to try to get, you know, treatment, and also because Minneapolis was a city in a state that had much more generous benefits and could provide the kind of social safety network where, you know, he could try to get clean. And it's really interesting that this research shows that, you know, in states and in places where there's not that social safety net where people can't get the unemployment benefits that they might need, 
you know, there's a very clear correlation with, you know, higher overdose deaths. And um, that is something that, you know, plays out in, in a very real way in, in real people's lives. And, and George Floyd is just one person who actually had to leave his home state to move to another state because that state had Medicaid expansion and had other parts of the social safety net that could help him try to get treatment. It's very similar for other people who are dealing with uh, opioid addiction who, you know, maybe based on the state they're in, they just can't get the kind of social safety net that they need. And that could take them into a further spiral, uh, even into, um, you know, overdosing. So it's really interesting to see it laid out, even though, as Dara said, I don't necessarily think it's fully novel, that the fact that if you give people a little bit more money and give them some support, they might be less likely to overdose and, uh, and find themselves in that kind of despair. But it is interesting to see how the, how the authors um, sort of went through the numbers and looked at the state-by-state -state comparisons and saw what happened in the aftermath of the Great Recession when states like Florida were cutting back on unemployment benefits while other states were making other choices. The, the authors of this paper, you know, do walk through like some plausible mechanisms by which this would be, if anything, a contributor to higher overdose rates. Because like if you have more money in people's pockets, you know, the like the Joe Manchin idea or for that matter, that, you know, because their time period on this is a window that ends in 2012. So it's they're looking at a phase of the opioid epidemic when it hadn't yet turned into an overwhelmingly street drug epi epidemic. And so if people are using the established healthcare system as their way of getting drugs and you're enabling them to continue to have health insurance, then you are kind of keeping that conduit open. Mm -hmm. So there is, you know, th that's that's a plausible mechanism. The flip side of that, of course, is that the overdose crisis has gotten a lot worse since 2012 because it's become a street drug crisis. And, you know, that's also meant that it's gone from being as it was during the period where, you know, this paper is focused, an unusually white drug crisis to a drug crisis that is yet again harming Black and Hispanic Americans at a much, you know, at, at much higher rates. And the the interesting finding, you know, when they break it down by race in this paper is that a decrease in unemployment benefits was associated with an increase in opioid overdoses among non-Hispanic whites, but a decrease in opioid overdoses among Black and Hispanic Americans, which, you know, could indicate that that as has been pretty pretty well documented, Black Americans in particular never got the kind of access to pain medication that would have led them to develop opioid dependencies because of, you know, racist ideas about pain tolerance, or for that matter, racist fears of drug abuse. But it could also just be a reflection of people who were less likely to have health insurance to begin with weren't going to have that availability through their doctors. And it would be would be interesting to see if you bring this up to 2022, if you have the same kind of relationship now that now that so much opioid use isn't happening through established channels and is has now turned to street drug seeking. Well, this seems as good a time as any to to remind people that Lou's book with Robert Samuels, His Name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice, is out on May 17th, wherever books are sold. You can pre-order now. We'll have that in, in our show notes. But thank you so much to Lou for, for being our special guest panelist this week. Yeah, it's, it's been great. Thank you so much. And thanks to Dara, as always, for, for being on the panel. <laughs> yeah, you get, you get a woo, too. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. 
We will be back in your feeds next week with a special episode for Earth Day. We are bringing back the Weeds time machine, so get in and get excited. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.